0: Kia ora. This programme is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now my haere mai, I'm John McDonald Kia ora, and welcome into the Hudson on Thursday the 17th of March. The Hutzone is one Access Radios weekly look into their stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hutt Valley community. Tonight we continue our time travel with our two local history series. One finishes tonight, which is the Eastbourne 1981 series, where Claire Twinby talks with Bill Baker on life in the 1930s, and we hear more in the penultimate part, in the Upper Hutt Library's 2014 Heritage Archives, where Sir George Chapman talks on his political life, and this episode is from the 1970s to the 1990s. This week's story is from former Eastern Bay's writer Catherine Mansfield. It's called Honesty. And the poem is from Lower Hutt's Katrina Lloyd called Contact. There is plenty of local music tonight from former Upper Hutt resident Rene Morris. I started a joke. Eastern Bay's Miles Calder and the rumours bring blue skies. Former Valley High School musician Darren Watson sings Ernie Abbott. Let's hear a bit of Hut City Brass's performance in the 2021 championships with a movement from a London overture. A movement of a London Overture from Hatsari Brass Band. Okay, time for this week's poem.
1: I am Katrina Lloyd from Lower Heart. My poem is called Contact. As I stumble into work the world is beautiful. The trees are dappled by the light reflected from a thousand windows. Even the crane is nodding to a perfect sky. I straighten likewise to extend a greeting and take this contact with me into the day.
0: And that was contact from Lower Hutt's Katrina Lloyd. Okay, time for the final episode in the 1981 series where Victoria University of Wellington PhD student Claire Toonby talked with Bill Baker on family life in the early decades of the 20th century. Today we hear about Bill and his wife Joan Baker's memories of early Eastbourne.
2: Parents would actually know all your friends. Oh yes. yes. They know their parents. Yes, and their parents, yes. So, when uh, you brought anybody home, well, just somebody you knew before. That's right. Yes.
3: You brought a stranger home. Who is he? Where does he live? What does his father do? So on and so on.
2: And, yeah, that, that's right. And I, I could just imagine you taking, t- t- uh, taking your future spouse home for the first time. You'd met her at the um, s- uh, surf club. What, what did your parents think?
3: Oh, I'd had one or two girlfriends before that, before I met Joan, and uh, mostly local girls. And uh, they had one girl from Seaton. Uh, but uh, we had to give her up because it was too costly to go in and see her, <laughs> and too hard to get there, see? I bought myself a motorbike, second hand one, smashed that up. I couldn't afford another one. I went into the sea coming round from York Bay instead of taking the corner, I went straight ahead. (laughs) (laughs) That would be on a dark night. On a dark night, yes. The headlights weren't very good in those days. Um,
2: When you came to get married, what did your parents think of your choice?
3: Oh, she comes. <laughs> we've been going for a couple of years,
2: <laughs> yes,
3: going together yes. for a couple of years before we got married. I was in the territorials, uh, I was keen on the army, and um, I, I was in the territorials there, and I used to go in and stay at Joan's Place, she lived in Tai and I used to go out, to, uh, Colburnie, yes, I'd go out to uh, Fort Dawson every Wednesday night, I used to leave my uniform at uh, Join place, have tea there, get into the uniform, and then go out to Fort Dawson, did you, and did then come home and stay the night again. Did,
2: did you put parents know each other too? No, not I
3: after years. Yes, so no. that they got to know each other afterwards.
2: Yeah. Mm. And well, you know, when you 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 go together for a couple of years, and did you did you did you have a book chest? Oh yes. Story box. Yes. What, no. what did you put in it? No. Sheets, and pillowcases and tea towels those days. Really, quite a good stock of yeah, these a good sorts stop, of things. Yes. Have you found it useful? Oh, I've been doing it been in for ten years. For ten years, huh? A few. Uh, as far as the Glory box is concerned, did you do this, uh, you know, before you met me? Oh your no, husband? no, I didn't get a Glory box together until I was engaged. Ah. Yes, I, I, I wonder, I and mean, I can still remember uh, girls of my own vintage uh, starting collecting things, you know, when they were 12 or 13 or something. They had a bottom drawer, it was supposed to be a bottom drawer, uh, but it was the same, uh, same idea altogether. But, you know, I, I would say, well, I if they won't get married and they got all that stuff there? <laughs> ah. And what about saving for a house? You know, you, you said you had two hundred and fifty dollars uh, pounds in the bank. Oh, that but went then, when you got when you got lost to your job.
3: That went during the uh, depression. Twelve really months. Twelve months that I was out of work. Just, uh, that just that led. must
2: have been very good savings for a young at that time. You said that off of your, your wages.
3: And by uh, you know, a round of uh, newspapers and things like that, yes. and working in the, uh, in the store. In the end, I was getting five shillings a week working in the store. That was good money in those days. We paid a deposit on the section? Yeah, I paid oh. a set-up. When well, I was working, I paid the deposit on the section at uh, time. I'll tell you what there first, that right. Sold that, and then put a deposit on the section at uh, time. Yeah. And uh, that's where we built, just after the war. And, of course, I got a rehabilitation like that, We built there, and then when Dad died in '48, we came back to the but I had to sell the house at that long time. And uh, that was a 30 year loan, we basically paid that off. That was that, we had three daughters. They were all married, Ten grandchildren. Mm. I always tell my wife here that her daughters have done a damn time better than she did. Mm
2: Your daughters live around here?
3: Yes, two of them, and uh, they married bay boys too. And the youngest one married a daddy boy, and he was the youngest son of uh, Congo, who was the Presbyterian minister, uh, during church. Mm-hmm. they live in the village.
2: Very convenient, really. This is what my own family is like at home, uh, but I know hardly any families like this here, till I've come to Eastbourne. A and, life uh, life. Quite a lot, yes. yes.
4: Well,
3: they seem to marry, mm-hmm. and
2: they go away for a little
4: while.
3: And then and they can't get back, back to the bike quick enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not surprised
2: that they I want to come back, it's really a
3: very, very, very pleasant place to that. Yes, it's Sleepy Hollow uh, there's no through track. If you want to come here, you come here. If you go out, you've got to go out, the same way that you came it's Oh, it's silly. wonderful today, absolutely fantastic.
2: It's, it's, to, yes, well, you know, I'm going on. to be bringing my son over in, in the summer holidays because I think really he can amuse himself better here, than in this in town. And, uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure will really enjoy it. Well, I mean, it's got a sea, but not from else. It's beautiful swimming pool, isn't yes, there. lovely kids' playground. And Butterfly Creek yes. up the back. You know, he's bringing his brains around too. <laughs> when we do an interview, we'll send them over to Butterfly Creek with a, with a project on the way.
3: They've <laughs> got a wonderful collection of uh, photographs down at the library.
2: Yes, we looked through them. Yes, yes, the very first day we came out sleep with a squeak here and squawk there. And as, and as and I, I mentioned, you know, this,
5: it's a pity because a lot of it doesn't have dates. Yes, no, yes. So. yes. They're
0: very lucky to have
3: them. When we had the school reunion, we uh, asked people to bring along photographs. Yes. Those are uh, copies of the photographs that were brought along.
0: I'm John MacDonald and you're in the Hudson on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was the late Bill Baker talking to PhD student Claire Toonby back in 1981 on Bill's family life in the early decades of the last century. A big thank you to the Historical Society of Eastbourne for letting us play that interview. Okay, time for some more music. From Miles Calder and the Rumours, here's their original song, Blue Skies.
6: I Get what you give and what I give is never nearly enough I never know which choices to take, the easy or the tough
0: that was Eastern Bay's Miles Calder and the Rumours singing of Blue Skies. Staying in the Eastern Bay's, but going back in time, for a short story from Catherine Mansfield, published in 1922 but never finished, so listeners don't be surprised when it ends mid-sentence.
7: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Honesty by Catherine Mansfield Recording by Sonia There was an expression Rupert Henderson was very fond of using. If you want my honest opinion... He had an honest opinion on every subject under the sun and nothing short of a passion for delivering it. But Archie Cullen's pet-phrase was, I cannot honestly say, which meant that he had not really made up his mind. He had not really made up his mind on any subject whatsoever. Why? Because he could not. He was unlike other men. He was minus something, or was it plus? No matter. He was not in the least proud of the fact. It depressed him, one might go so far as to say, terribly at times. Rupert and Archie lived together. That is to say, Archie lived in Rupert's rooms. Oh, he paid his share, his half in everything. The arrangement was a purely strictly business arrangement. But perhaps it was because Rupert had invited Archie that Archie remained always his guest. They each had a bedroom, there was a common sitting-room, and the largish bathroom, which Rupert used as a dressing-room as well. The first morning after his arrival, Archie had left his sponge in the bathroom, and a moment after there was a knock at his door, and Rupert said, kindly but firmly, "'Your sponge, I fancy.' The first evening Archie had brought his tobacco-jar into the sitting-room and placed it on a corner of the mantelpiece. Rupert was reading the newspaper.' It was a round china jar, the surface painted and roughened to represent a sea urchin, on the lid was a spray of china seaweed with two berries for a knob. Archie was excessively fond of it, but after dinner, when Rupert took out his pipe and pouch, he suddenly fixed his eyes on this object, blew through his moustaches, gasped, and said in a wondering, astonished voice, I say, is that yours or Mrs. Head's? Mrs. Head was their landlady. "'It's mine,' said Archie, and he blushed and smiled just a trifle timidly. "'I say,' said Rupert again, this time very meaningly. "'Would you rather I—' said Archie, and he moved in his chair to get up. "'No, no, certainly not, on no account,' answered Rupert, and he actually raised his hand. "'But perhaps—' and here he smiled at Archie and gazed about him, perhaps we might find some spot for it that was a trifle less conspicuous. The spot was not decided on, however, and Archie nipped his sole personal possession into his bedroom as soon as Rupert was out of the way. But it was chiefly at meals that the attitude of host and guest was most marked. For instance... On each separate occasion, even before they sat down, Rupert said, Would you mind cutting the bread, Archie? Had he not made such a point of it, it is possible that Archie in a moment of abstractedness might have grasped the bread knife, an unpleasant thought. Again, Archie was never allowed to serve. Even at breakfast, the hot dishes and the tea, both were dispensed by Rupert. True, he have apologized about the tea— He seemed to feel the necessity of some slight explanation there. "'I'm rather a fad about my tea,' said he. "'Some people, females especially, pour in the milk first. Fatal habit, for more reasons than one. In my opinion, the cup should be filled just so, and the tea then coloured. Sugar, Archie?' "'Oh, please,' said Archie, almost bowing over the table. Rupert was so very impressive. "'But I suppose—' said his friend, you don't notice any of these little things. And Archie answered vaguely, stirring, no, I don't suppose I do. Rupert sat down and unfolded his napkin. It would be very inconsistent with your character and disposition, said he genially, if you did. Kidneys and bacon? Scrambled eggs? Either? Both? Which? Poor Archie hated scrambled eggs, but, alas, He was practically certain that scrambled eggs were expected of him, too. This psychological awareness, as Rupert called it, which existed between them, might after a time make things a trifle difficult. He felt a little abject as he murmured, ''Eggs, please.'' And he saw by Rupert's expression that he had chosen right. Rupert helped him to eggs largely. Psychological awareness. Perhaps it was that which explained their intimacy. One might have been tempted to say it was a case of mutual fascination, but whereas Archie's reply to the suggestion would have been a slow, possibly, Rupert would have flouted it at once. Fascination, the words preposterous in this connection, what on earth would there be in Cullen to fascinate me, even if I was in the habit of being fascinated by my fellow creatures, which I certainly am not? No. I'll own I am deeply interested. I confess my belief is, I understand him better than anybody else. And if you want my honest opinion, I am certain that my, my, hmm, influence over, sympathy for, him, call it what you like, is all to the good. There is a psychological awareness. Moreover, as a companion, instinctively I find him extremely agreeable. He stimulates some part of my mind which is less active without him. But fascination, wide of the mark, my dear, wide. But supposing one remained unconvinced, supposing one still played with the idea, wasn't it possible to see Rupert and Archie as the python and the rabbit keeping house together? Rupert, that handsome, well-fed python, with his moustaches, his glare, his habit of uncoiling before the fire and swaying against the mantelpiece, pipe and pouch in hand. And Archie, soft, hunched, timid, sitting in the lesser armchair, there and not there, flicking back into the darkness at a word, but emerging again at a look, with sudden, wholly unexpected starts of playfulness, instantly suppressed by the python. Of course there was no question of anything so crude and dreadful as the rabbit being eaten by his housemate. Nevertheless, it was a strange fact. After a typical evening, the one looked immensely swelled, benign and refreshed, and the other pale, small and exhausted. And more often than not, Rupert's final comment was, ominous this, as he doused his whiskey with soda, "'This has been very absorbing, Archie.' "'And Archie gasped out, "'Oh, very.' "'Archie Cullen was a journalist "'and the son of a journalist. "'He had no private money, "'no influential connections, "'scarcely any friends. "'His father had been one of those weak, "'disappointed, unsuccessful men "'who see in their sons a weapon for themselves. "'He would get his own back on life through Archie.' Archie would show them the stuff he, his father, was made of. Just you wait till my son comes along. This, though highly consoling to Mr. Cullen, pear, was terribly poor fun for Archie. At two and a half his infant nose was put to the grindstone, and even on Sundays it was not taken off. Then his father took him out walking and improved the occasion by making him spell the shop signs, count the yachts, racing in the harbour, divide them by four, and multiply the result by three. But the experiment was an amazing success. Archie turned away from the distractions of life, shut his ears, folded his feet, sat over the table with his book, and when the holidays came, he didn't like them. They made him uneasy, so he went on reading for himself. He was a model boy. On prize giving days, his father accompanied him to school, "'carried the great wad of stiff books home for him, "'and flinging them on the dining-room table, "'he surveyed them with an exultant smile. "'My prizes! "'The little sacrifice stared at them, too, "'through his spectacles, "'as other little boys stared at puddings. "'He ought, of course, at this juncture "'to have been rescued by a doting mother, "'who, though cowed herself, rose on the...
0: And we will never know what happens next, as that was one of Catherine Mansfield's unfinished short stories. A big thank you to Sonia of LibriVox Recordings for today's reading. And you can hear more of LibriVox's stories at LibriVox.org. Okay, time for some more music. From former Upper resident Renée Maurice, now living in Auckland, here she is with her cover of the Bee Gees song... I started a joke.
4: I started a joke which started the whole. Started to cry which started the whole I'm finally done Which started the whole
0: I'm John McDonald, you in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM, and that was former Upper Hut resident Rene Maurice, and I started a joke. Okay, next up, and staying in Upper Hut, time for a little more history. In 2014, Jane Cherry talked to longtime resident Sir George Chapman about his political life.
1: in in those early times generated a lot of um, excitement, didn't he?
5: Oh yes, he he was really an incredible public speaker Mm. just amazing and and the turnout which the media didn't see for a long time didn't realise what was happening to the National Party for a long time, they saw the Kirk government in there indefinitely Uh, you know, for six, nine years, never gave a thought to what the National Party was doing and what was happening. I was getting plenty of publicity, I was making plenty of statements. As I moved around the country, which I did, I travelled extensively. And my wife travelled extensively with me as well. And the local papers were picking up what was going on, but the major papers like the Dominion and the Herald were not picking it up. They're not, not picking amazing,
1: up. It's amazing, isn't it, because it was such an important time. Yeah, our-
5: yeah. it was. Yeah. During this time, a quite interesting event occurred, which was quite important to me in a commercial sense as well, because I'd been appointed, as I've said earlier, to the Bank of New Zealand, which was a three-year appointment by the government, government government-owned bank then, and reappointed for another three years, which took me to 1974, 1974, in the middle of the Labour government. But one day I was sitting in my office, I think I was sitting in my office and Bill Rowling got a call. My secretary said there's a call from Bill Rowling, Minister of Finance, as he was then. I said, oh, I, I thought to myself, it's very kind of Bill to call me up and say he's going to replace me. <laughs> very thoughtful of him. Bill Rowling came on the phone and said, I've uh, decided to reappoint you to the Bank of New Zealand. I've talked to Prime Minister Norman Kirk." And he's uh, decided that our president, who's just been knighted, will come on the board as well. So both we will announce both your appointments at the same time. So you were
1: both on the board?
5: Yeah. (laughs) So... So
1: you got on well with Bill?
5: Yeah, well, spoke spoke to Bill. So the, the... the President, that wasn't Bill Rowling, he was then yes. Minister of Finance, of yes. course. So the Labour Party President and I sat side by side on the <laughs> board of the Bank of New Zealand. <laughs> it's very interesting. I learned also that, that the uh, Labour Party organisation was no longer strongly led. <laughs> so you got all a bit of inside information. Yeah. <laughs> it was very valuable information. So um, the. Momentum built up and, and, of course, Norman Kirk died, which was a very sad event. Bill Rowling became leader. What was leader. that day
1: like when, when, he, when you found out that he oh, died? it was a
5: big shock. It was a big shock. It was a big shock to the country. A person who's prime minister, who's won the election, dominant figure, and suddenly he's not there. He'll, he'll... Bill Rowling became prime minister and he was not efficient. He, he certainly didn't measure up at I, I Muldoon, chopped them to mm, pieces.
1: Ate, ate them alive.
5: Yeah, chopped them to pieces. And so we we won, national, won back in the landslide.
1: That was 75, wasn't that, it?
5: That was 75, yes, won the landslide. So I carried on. I'd already, once I had become president, I'd decided to do six years. I thought that was probably about the maximum. So I carried on to the 78 election. And then 79, I then, and everything Went according. I kept the pressure on the party and I became a public figure in that process. Uh, in 79, 80, about 1980 it must have been, or seventy nine, eighty, when I wrote the book The Years of Lightning, I um, started to review my position because I'd, I'd done the six years I'd thought in terms of. When the word leaked out, I was considering my position, I started to get the messages back. Nobody wanted me to resign. I I thought, you know, after six years, there must be somebody that wants the job. No, nobody wanted to to confess the job. And nobody was looking to come to to the job. And and all over the country, I got messages from all sorts of people saying, you must carry on, you must carry on. So I spoke to my wife, Jacqueline, who, of course affected by all this activity and the family were affected by everything that was going on and I got the same message from home. So I, I then carried on, which is the reason I carried on for the extra three years which I hadn't intended to do when I, I took the job and it was the last three years that were the hardest uh, In uh, the, the, the government were kind to me again, they made, gave me further, I kept on being reappointed to the Bank of New Zealand. In fact I was on the board of the Bank of New Zealand for 18 years, finally, and deputy chairman for quite a bit of that time. And the uh, government asked me to go on the board of Maui Gas as well. And as a result of that, I went on the board of Liquid Gas, which was, uh, those are all quite valuable and interesting commercial experiences. Uh, so finally, we came to the 81 election, which was very tight, very difficult election. It was. The hardest one, by a long way, and uh, we scraped through that one. And I'd already announced at uh, before the 80 at the annual meeting in the 81 that I was going to retire in 82. That was the only way I seemed to be able to get out of the, <laughs> the job. The job that I would had trouble getting into, <laughs> I was having trouble getting out of. It. So that seemed to be the answer. To, and at nine years, that was probably one of the longest, that was in fact one of the longest terms any person has been president of the National Party. So the party was good enough to offer a knighthood through the Queen of course and it was a very great privilege and so I retired in 82 and was knighted at the Queen's Birthday Honours which was good in the sense that it also recognised the part my wife had played. Mm. Yes, and there was a I felt good about that. yeah. Once I'd retired, I thought, well, one of the problems was that I, I damaged my business. I damaged my part in the business. I mean, I retained the senior partnership right until the time I retired in 2000 or 2001 in the practice, but I damaged the client base that I'd been acting for and the partners that had taken over. But fortunately, that was solved by. Uh, a number of appointments to public companies.
1: It's housing New Zealand, when did that come along? A...
5: It came along quite a bit later. Right, yeah. Yes, I'll go back to that perhaps. But initially, I was approached to go on the Norwich Union board, which is a life insurance company. As it subsequently took over the state insurance, so I went onto that board as well. That was an English-owned operation last on that one for 18 years after I'd retired from the National Party. I was approached by um, Pilkingtons, again owned by an English company, to go on their board and I became chairman there. I lasted, was on that board for quite a while. I was approached to go on the Scalarup Industries board when it was owned by the Scalarup Group but it was a public company so I went on that board as well so I, I, I gained quite a lot of professional business. So you
1: didn't have time to miss politics?
5: Uh, I didn't have time to miss going back to accountancy <laughs> 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 no. in other words I, I went to a commercial area but I've, I've always maintained my interest in politics.
1: Yes but did you miss being?
5: No I was relieved I was a great it was a great strain. Being in politics at, at that top level of the presidency was an enormous personal strain required. Uh, a demand, a pressure, a demand was continual. Like, none say what the parliamentarians are up against, particularly the ministers. But I found it at, at the presidency level, and bear in mind that the National Party at that time had a party membership of 200,000. It's a lot of, lot of people want access. And one of the things I found about it, perhaps most, other than the demand from the news media, which was constant, because uh, Rob Muldoon was a controversial figure, the media would often try and persuade me to say something which was inappropriate to say about Rob Muldoon. But
1: you never did. Rob
5: Muldoon, no, no.
1: You held your cards very close to your chest.
5: yes. But what I would find is, is, is I'd go away with the family and be lying on a beach or something like that and somebody would come up and want to talk to me politics. You know, I became a public figure in, in the process of becoming president. And it took quite a number of years afterwards for that to die away, that process to die away. I remember experiences when, when you know, Jacqueline and I had been travelling outside of New Zealand and been approached by people outside of New Zealanders, outside of New Zealand, to say, oh, your face is familiar. <laughs> you George Chapman, <German." laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> so um, I kept a constant touch, in constant touch with the National Party. That's been my position ever since. I, I've become a sort of senior party person, as it were. Uh, it's very unusual in the party conferences, uh Nobody else is there that's been, has the record that I have, of course, now because of the time that's got by and I'm still about and (laughs) still taking interest.
1: Sixty-six years.
5: Yes, there's very few with that sort of.
1: But it's very few people who last and don't become cynical or jaded. Mm -hmm. You you don't sound like you. um, You still remain quite positive. Oh,
5: absolutely. I, I mean. What is today, Thursday? On Tuesday, I was went into Wellington to talk to the uh, chief executive of the National Party. We had lunch together every I don't year. think
1: you realise how amazing that is, that that you are so, you know, you're 87 and you're still this involved after 66 years. Yes. It's fantastic.
5: Well, it seems when when I go to party conferences, uh, it seems to be recognised. I like get a lot of people say, oh, yeah. You don't look half your age. (laughs) Well, that's an exaggeration, of course. So perhaps just coming back to the point you raised earlier about housing New Zealand, when National went out of office in 84 and was beaten again in 87, I think it didn't expect to get beaten in 87 because the share market crash came a few weeks after the election. I think the National Party felt it had been robbed that election. So it prepared for the 1990 election with Jim Bolger to lead it and I was given a call from party headquarters by the president, there's been several presidents through, the president said, look, George, we've got a role which we'd like you to fill. We want you to become chair of our marginal seats committee because it's still first past the post at that stage and you will have charge of of the operation, the election day operation, and you will have representation from the Prime Minister's department on the, on there to, to plan for the marginal seats, the seats we have to win to become government again. So I said, OK, I said that's what you want. It's my obligation to, to go and do it. So I accepted that role, and uh, it worked very well, bringing together the... Prime Minister's people those close to the Prime Minister the party top brass and reaching out to the regional people because of my seniority and status I was able to do that to concentrate on the on the, mark, the seats we had to win to become the government outcome was National 1 that one in the landslide so they asked me to uh, carry on in that role for the 1993 election and in the 1993 one they also asked me to go on television, represent the party on television, which I was quite happy to do. On TV One, they had a on election night, had a sort of thing revolve uh, going up and down, not showing. A worm. Uh, no, no, not a wimp. <laughs> <laughs> showing the you know National Party and Labour Party and going depending on the votes whether how they would work out. So, what's the uh, National Party vote drop and drop, or seats. We were losing, Labour going up and up, And uh, so I had access, direct access to Jim Bolger. And I rang Jim and said, gee, it's not going so well. And <laughs> Jim said, no, he didn't like it. He was getting it on. He was getting it after I was get, getting it, because I was getting it first. So I kept him informed. And late in the evening, the figures showed that Labour had won that election, the TV figures showed them
1: was that the last, yeah.
5: oh, last um, first yeah. past the post election yeah. Yeah. It showed one, had won that election I decided not to ring Jim I thought well, that news will get through to him quickly enough but somebody must have rung Mike, Mike Moore because Mike Moore Mike came on TV and said oh we've won we've won we've won then the TV found that the information they had was not correct and afterwards, as uh, yes, people reviewed the election night, they said, What was wrong with Moore? guy was a nutter. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody from TV must have rung him. <laughs>
1: lucky you didn't ring
5: <laughs> <Jim> Bolger. <laughs> so afterwards, you know, I retired from. Well, oh, I thought I'd had enough by then. <laughs> that wasn't enough for me. Oh, i get back to my commercial activities, you see. <laughs>
0: And that was Jane Cherry interviewing Sir George Chapman in 2014. A big thank you to Upper Hutt Library for letting us play that interview. That was the penultimate episode, so the last part plays next week. But sadly, that must mean that's the end of this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today. And a big thank you to you for listening to the show and supporting Wellington Access Radio. If you have a local hut story, musician or poetry suggestion, then please make contact. We'd love to hear from you. Facebook message me or email the team. And our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz. Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hutzone pages of accessradio.org.nz. Or check out my Facebook page for links to some of the individual interviews and stories. And my Facebook name is John McDonald NZ. Join me next Thursday in the Hut Zone Show. Until then, keep safe, and let's go out with some local music. Here's Darren Watson with his tribute song to the late Ernie Abbott, who was killed in the Trades Hall bombing. Ra. <laughs>
8: on a gold kings would use and the people they stood around crying a neat little basket of beautiful flowers I said for the dying, he didn't have much just a dog and a bed, and he spent his whole life cleaning up rooms. All the ones who made a fight, what we just gave away. And the many bowed down to the few. Somebody got to know who took the life from this. Man, somebody got to know who put burning, out soul in God's hands. case a ratty old bag left behind by the door and Bernie wasn't gone without a trace somebody's got to know who took the life of this peaceful man. Somebody got to know who put Ernie and soul in God's hands.